If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 2. As with many of these passages at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, I imagine this is another familiar story. It's the story of the wise men and Herod. So we are going to uh, read this, and we are going to try to look at it again, like we did last week, with fresh eyes, that the gospel would not only uh, be good news to us, but would feel like good news again. So this is God's word for us this morning. This is a portion of the truest story that's ever been told in the world. This is from Matthew 2, this is verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word for us this morning. In this story, you have descriptions of two groups of people who are seeking after Jesus, and you meet them in verse 1. You get Herod, and you get the wise men. The wise men, we see a little bit more about them in verses 1 and 2. But the truth of the matter is, we don't know much about the wise men, or the magi, whatever you would like to call them. We don't even know how many of them there were. Uh, Our nativity scenes tend to have three because there are three gifts that are offered, but there could have been two, there could have been nine, um, there could have been a hundred. We just don't know how many wise men there were. But we know that they came from the east, which means they probably came from either Persia or what would have been left of Babylon. And what we do know about these wise men is that they believed that they could understand the world by the stars. 
They could look at the sky and at the motion of the stars and the planets and the constellations and understand things about the world. They could understand omens of things to come. They could understand uh, events as they were unfolding in history. Broadly speaking, we would say these are kind of quasi-pagan religious philosophers. That's kind of who they are. And it might be helpful for us to remember that before the, the modern era, before the era of science and the scientific revolution, people did not think that space was cold and empty. People thought that the universe itself, that space itself was charged with meaning. Even in Genesis 1, God says that the stars are given for the times and the seasons. And in the ancient world, people thought that that the sky itself was speaking truth, was proclaiming even, maybe, the glory of God. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully in a number of his writings, but my favorite is in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is arguably the greatest book ever written. Uh, And in that book, uh, one of the characters, a young man named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it, uh, is talking to a star. He's met a star, and it's like a, a person. And he says to this star, he says, Wow, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And the star responds to him, Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. In the ancient world, the stars themselves were charged with meaning. In the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, we were reminded that God is sovereign over history. We saw that in the genealogy where we could see God's faithfulness unfold through the history of Israel. Here in chapter 2, we are reminded that God is also sovereign over creation. And it's not clear here what the wise men saw. It's not clear if it's a star or a comet, or a planetary alignment. Uh, It's not clear if it's a natural phenomenon or a supernatural phenomenon, although a lot of different people have speculated about a lot of different things that it could have been. What is absolutely clear, though, in Matthew chapter 2, is that God, in his sovereign kindness, leads these wise men to Christ. But first, he leads them to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they meet King Herod. It's probably good to think a little bit about Herod before we dive in too much farther, because it'll explain a lot over the next few weeks. Herod, at this time, was the king of Judea, which is what the Romans called the province that would have been roughly the land of Israel. Judea was a province in the Roman Empire. Uh, And Herod was not a king in David's line. He was not, in any meaningful sense, the rightful king of the people. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish. He was a convert to Judaism, so he wasn't ethnically Jewish. And he was only the king of this area because he had been appointed king by the Roman Senate. And Herod, what you need to know, was paranoid. He was constantly paranoid that his... uh, ethnicity or that his kingship would be seen as illegitimate by people. And so he was constantly worried of coups or attempts on his life or his kingdom. 
In an attempt to consolidate power, Herod married the eldest daughter of this very notable and important family in ancient Israel. But he was so paranoid that he believed that his wife and three of his sons were actually attempting to steal the kingdom from him. And he had them executed. Herod was a wicked and murderous, paranoid king. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time, once commented that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. So imagine the Magi show up in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Verse 3 tells us when Herod heard that, he was troubled. Troubled is an understatement. In fact, the Greek word that is translated troubled there is the same word that describes how the disciples felt when they were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee with the storm while Jesus was asleep. They feared for their very lives. It was the same word that John's gospel uses to describe how Jesus felt outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, troubled, shaken to the very core of his being. Herod was not just troubled, Herod was panicked. Herod thought that his very life was on the line here. And it says that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod because Jerusalem by this time surely knows that when Herod is troubled, people tend to die. And so what Herod does is he assembles, verse 4 tells us, the priests and the scribes, and he inquires of them where the Christ will be born. And again, even the translation there doesn't capture all of the nuance because instead of inquires, it might better be translated frantically asked where the Christ would be born. And in verses 5 and 6, the scholars answer, well, the Bible says that the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. And they quote there, and Matthew also quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So knowing the location, Herod summons secretly the wise men back to him and deputizes them, gives them a job to do, which is go and find this child and come back and tell me where he is so that I too may go and worship. Now we know the story. We know that Herod has no intent at all on going to worship Jesus. We know instead that he intends to kill him. We'll talk about that next week. It's important for us to understand rightly what motivates Herod. And it's important because I think sometimes we paint Herod as this sort of one-dimensional cartoon villain who's just evil, period. But one of the things we have to do if we want to read the Gospels well is we have to learn to see ourselves in the problematic figures in the Gospels. See, we think Herod is silly because we think, Herod, Jesus isn't that kind of king. He's not coming to supplant you. He's not coming to take your kingdom from you. But what I submit to you this morning is that Herod understands completely what kind of king Jesus is. 
Jesus is that kind of king. And he was not just the rightful king of Israel. Jesus is the rightful king of the entire universe. He lays claim to everything that exists. This great Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper captures this beautifully when he says there is not one square inch in the entire creation about which Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Friends, if Jesus is Lord, we are not. If Jesus is king, we are not. Which means Herod correctly understands that the birth of Jesus is a threat to him. And friends, it's also a threat to us. You see, Herod is not just this gospel arch enemy. In some ways, Herod gives us a crystal clear picture of what our hearts look like under the power of sin. And friends, anywhere that our hearts resist the lordship of Jesus, anywhere where we do not bow in submission to this king, there is a hint of Herod remaining in our hearts. The early church had this great image for talking about sin that I think is wonderfully vivid. And they said that sin means being curved in on yourself. That that sin means that you are curved in on yourself, which means really you are enslaved to yourself. You are addicted to yourself. You see, the early church understood properly that we are made to love God and to love others. We are made to be pointed outward towards other people and towards our creator. But sin makes our default posture self-love, self-concern. We are enslaved and addicted to self. And let me tell you what this looks like, because I imagine you experience it more frequently than you know. It looks like experiencing things and seeing things only as they affect you. Something happens in your life, something happens to someone else, something happens at your job, and your chief concern, your initial thought is, oh man, that makes my life so much more complicated. Let me confess to you how I did this this week, earlier this week. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I had uh, a schedule with some meetings on it, uh, and Jen needed to go pick up one of our children from school, and she called me and she said, hey, one of the other kids is not feeling well. Could you just come home long enough for me to run and pick up Rainy from school? And all I could think was, man, I can't believe she would ask me to do that. What an unreasonable thing to ask. You know, how, how am I supposed to not only pastor the church, but how am I supposed to look good to the church if I have to reschedule a meeting because of a sick child? I'm not going to be impressive to people. And friends, the point wasn't that I was frustrated by just the inconvenience of it, but, but my heart was so addicted to what you guys would think of me if I was the kind of person that has to reschedule meetings. Jesus says to me, 
The Lord of the universe says to me, Todd, love Jen like I love the church, which means go and die for Jen. Jesus did not skip the inconvenience of the cross so that he could crush it at work and impress his colleagues. Friends, it was a moment for me of needing to repent. There was a hint of Herod in my heart. We do this all the time. This is so ingrained in us. Anytime you participate in what I will just call Christian activities, things like reading your Bible or tithing or praying or coming to worship or volunteering, and you are doing that primarily to feel good about yourself or to look good to other people, there is a hint of Herod in your heart. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, not look good to your neighbor. Anytime you refuse to forgive someone because you like the feeling of having power over them, there is a hint of Herod in your heart. Jesus says, forgive others as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. Holding on to bitterness to keep power in a relationship is a hint of Herod in your heart. Anytime you find your chief identity in your work or your family or your appearance or your performance, there is a hint of Herod there. Because Jesus calls us to remember that our chief identity is in him when God says to us that we are his beloved children with whom he is well pleased. There's a hint of Herod in all of our hearts. Friends, Herod hears that the king of the universe has been born not three hours walk from where he was standing. And the only thing he can think of is how that will inconvenience him. How that will be a threat to his small kingdom. We all do it in our hearts. So Herod calls the wise men to himself. He deputizes them, and verse 9 gives their response, which is kind of funny if you think about it. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. The magi are wonderfully noncommittal. They, they listen, they let Herod get it out, and then they go on their way. Doesn't say they agree to anything. They listen, and they leave. One commentator put it this way. He said, Herod tries to conscript into the service of his petty kingship those looking to adore the king of the universe. They are noncommittal and they go on their way. And as they leave Jerusalem, it says that the star rises. Again, the star that they've been following, but now they have the more certain word, the word of God. Uh, Bruner, our wise guide to the Gospel of Matthew, puts it this way. He says, it's interesting that the star of creation does not lead the Magi directly to Christ. There's an intermediate stop in Jerusalem, in the Israelite church, where Scripture is opened. And only then is focus finally given to the star's light and so direction to the Magi's search. The star brings us to Jerusalem. Only Scripture brings us to Bethlehem. 
Creation can bring us to the church. The church's Bible brings us to the Christ. When they arrive in Bethlehem, the star comes to rest over the house where Jesus and his family are staying. Verse 10 says, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When is the last time you felt joy like that? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Which is quite a contrast to Herod's paranoia and his murderous rage. They rejoice. They haven't even seen Jesus yet. They just figured out which house he's in and they are rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. The little lights of creation had led them to the very source of all light. And verse 11 tells us they enter the house and they see there a very human two-year-old Jesus. Uh, Events in the next chapter make us think that Jesus is probably about two years old now. Side note, uh, all of our nativity sets are inaccurate. Uh, If you really would like to be accurate, one of my friends used to put the the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and and baby Jesus in the manger there. And then like on the other side of the room, he would put the wise men. Um, So you you could do that. They see this very human two-year-old Jesus and they fall down and they worship him, which is amazing because babies are cute, but they are not majestic. I have never once been tempted to fall down on my face in worship before a two-year-old, even if the two-year-old seemed to be trying to get me to do that. They don't honor this baby. They worship this child. Only God can be worshipped. Only God receives worship. Their worship of this child is a picture, again, of the fact that this is no ordinary human child. It looks like a two-year-old, but it is also the very God of life himself. And the scriptures tell us that they open their treasure and they present gifts to this child and to Mary. They give gold And frankincense, which was a resin that was used in incense. And they give myrrh, which was another uh, uh, sort of a sap that would be used for incense and perfume. And was also, if you uh, ingested it, was was a stimulant. But they give these gifts to this child. And the significance of these gifts, if you heard it, has already been mentioned in in the worship service this morning. In Isaiah chapter 60. Gold and frankincense are the gifts that the nations will bring when God finally intervenes to fix the world. And that's the picture here. The nations have come to worship the king of Israel, who's also the king of the universe. God is here. God is fixing everything that's wrong. And verse 12 tells us that they go home then, having worshipped. They go home A different way. Because, friends, when we worship Christ, we always go home different. And so there's an irony kind of baked into this passage, and that is that the leaders of God's people, the insiders, the people that have the Bible, they want nothing to do with the newborn king except to kill him. However, quasi-pagan outsiders see creation announce the birth of a king, and they abandon everything 
to seek after this king and to worship him. You see two ways there to seek Jesus. But friends, the point of the passage, the point of the story is so much deeper than that. The takeaway this morning is not be more like the Magi and don't be like Herod. The point of the story is not about how to seek Jesus. The point of the story is that God in Jesus is seeking us. Think about it this way. This is a story about a God who declares the birth of his son to the Magi in the stars, in the heavens. And this God leads them to Jerusalem, where they hear the word of God spoken from the mouth of a king that God has sovereignly placed in power. This is a story about a God who gives exceeding joy to the Magi. This is not a story about the Magi giving the first Christmas gifts. This is about a God who so loved he gave his only son to be a gift. Because he loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. As the Jesus Storybook Bible so wonderfully puts it. Friends, the gospel is not that we can seek God, but that God seeks us. It is always God who seeks, and in Christ, God has come to seek and to save what is lost. And that means that nothing will ever be the same. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who seeks. You're not a God that sends help, but a God that comes and helps. Father, we thank you that you've sent Christ to us. When we were dead in sin, when we were rebels against you, you loved us and sent Christ to redeem us. Father, we pray that you would anchor us in the hope of what Christ has done. And even now, as we come to your table, Lord, we pray that you would be with us and for us here, that you would even take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us in the truth of Christ's person and work, of who he is and what he has done to rescue us from sin and death. In these elements, make us holy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.